0: Larry Diamond is a professor of sociology and political science at Stanford University and a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution. He also supervises the Democracy Program at the Center on Democracy, Development, and the Rule of Law at Stanford. Today he will discuss the global assault that has continued for several years on liberal democracies everywhere. Let's listen in. Uh, for those of you
1: who haven't had the pleasure of meeting Larry Diamond or, or reading his work, let me say very simply, uh, that he is one of the world's most respected students of democracy, uh, safeguarding democracy, promoting democracy, uh, and, uh, you know, and doing battle with the foes of democracy. He's devoted a substantial portion of his life to this endeavor. Uh, His latest book is a comprehensive survey of how things stand with democracy around the world. The book has been acclaimed and justly so. Uh, He has worked for many years with the National Endowment for Democracy, along with his scholarly duties at Stanford University. Uh, And it's no accident that his name pops up almost anywhere uh, where democracy is on the line. So without further ado, uh, take it away, Larry.
2: Okay, well, uh, thank you, Bill. I think your name pops up before mine and deservedly so, but uh, I do consider we're uh, profound uh, kindred spirits in this cause of trying to uh, defend the core principles of liberal democracy. Uh, And maybe that's where I should begin. Uh, Actually, you can't do uh, uh, a better service to yourself than uh, by reading uh, Bill's uh, recent article. I think it was, was it in the July issue, Bill, of the Journal of Democracy? The Enduring Vulnerability of Liberal Democracy. And since uh, Bill doesn't make a practice of promoting himself, I'll just say if you go to uh, journalofdemocracy.org, you'll find it freely accessible on our website. Um, I suppose I should say that uh, to begin with the global context, liberal democracy uh, is under assault now globally, and it has been for um, for some years. And you all know about what's been happening in Hungary, what's been happening in, in Poland. Uh, uh, you're probably less familiar with what's happening in India, which is not. A liberal democracy in the same way that Hungary was until Orban buried it, but has had very liberal elements. And where uh, the extremely skillful, charismatic, uh, illiberal, and I think ultimately authoritarian populist Narendra Modi has been uh, delivering, particularly now in his second term as prime minister an increasingly uh, um, unmitigated and withering assault uh, on the liberal elements of democracy, judicial independence, civil society, intellectual freedom, freedom to criticize, um, the rule of law in terms of the neutral application of the law. And you just see in... uh, in one country after another. We could talk about Brazil as well under Bolsonaro. We could talk about what I think is now the demise of the minimum standards of electoral democracy in the Philippines, which is a pretty big country pushing around 100 million people now. Uh, and um, You see some version of the same uh, game plan, the same playbook, what I call the authoritarians, uh, authoritarians uh, 12-step program, where they come into power on a wave of resentment against political elites, uh, insecurity over um, their circumstances of their lives, and over some of what are painted to be, and then people accept to be existential threats to core interests of safety and security, cultural integrity, you know, national sovereignty, um, uh, threats from others is the best way to portray this. Uh, and the populist uh, individual leader and party, rides that to power and then begins to uh, dismantle the guardrails of uh, restraint of power and check and balancing of power and protection of minority rights that constitute liberal democracy uh, and that keep um, purely electoral democracy from becoming what our constitutional founders Uh, so obviously deeply and appropriately feared, which is tyranny of the majority. Uh, And they start by going after the courts and the media. Those are always the two earliest targets. Uh, And they label their opponents as um, disloyal in some way, or fatally corrupt uh, and incestuous elites. Uh, and try to delegitimize them. and Gradually, they go after other institutions and try and marginalize or subjugate them, Uh, including uh, universities, as I said, intellectuals, other civil society organizations, ultimately the business community that's intimidated into uh, being co-opted or silenced because they don't want to have the tax man at the door, or they don't want to lose government contracts. Or frankly, if I can just bring it back to the United States, they don't want to lose their friends at the country club uh, and uh, offend others in their social circle. So uh, they um, uh, retreat into. Uh, Some degree of acceptance or silence, uh, where to bring it to the United States, you get uh, in a liberal populist leader uh, who deliberately polarizes uh, our politics, as I think um, our current president has been doing, which is not to excuse the polarizing dynamics on the other side and the way in which um, the two extremes play off one another uh, and in a certain perverse way, legitimize one another. But it's particularly dangerous when you're having it happen from a leader of government. And, um, uh, then you get this downward spiral that has, you know, that no labels deeply understands and has helped to, uh, Motivate the founding of no labels and the work of no labels. And I'm not going to suggest, I don't believe that the United States is anywhere near the tra- trajectory of Hungary or Turkey or Poland uh, or the Philippines or even India, which I repeat, I could go on about this. I am very, very deeply worried about. It. I think democracy in the world's largest democracy by population is really not maybe quite on critical life support now, but but headed in the, that direction toward a republic of fear. Uh, and um, you know, I think the lesson of all of this and what is motivating a group of political science, well, I should say groups of political scientists and former government officials from both parties, Um, from multiple administrations who've been convening in um, various networks and task forces to try and address our current political crisis in the United States, is that we see a lot of flashing uh, warning signs of uh, fraying of our shared cultural commitment to democratic norms and restraints. And every time you get a step down the road to hell in terms of abandoning more guardrails of say um, eliminating the filibuster over judicial appointments uh, or saying, "I, I think what's happening now in the Congress and it's not because I personally won't philosophically like President uh, Trump's nominee uh, to the vacancy, that's got nothing to do with it. I didn't question in the least uh, his right to name Neil Gorsuch and and Justice Kavanaugh to the bench. It's all about the procedures and rules. And so many of the rules uh, that sustain liberal democracy or As my colleagues Levitsky and Ziblatt uh, said in their book on how democracies die, the guardrails of restraint involve um, recognition of the danger of fully utilizing to the hilt every last ounce of formally, legally, and constitutionally permissible power. So, to my mind, uh, the most important insight about democratic stability comes from the work of Robert Dahl uh, in his famous book, Polyarchy, when he talked about a system of mutual security where each side recognizes in a multi-party system, now let's say a two-party system, that if it fully utilizes every last ounce of power it could legally get away with, Uh, you're in a game of partisan warfare where you can't build up the trust and what he called mutual security that keeps the system going uh, and uh, keeps people uh, from turning toward violence. And many of us now, political scientists, legal scholars, people who've served both administrations, see these warning signs of the guardrails falling away. Of an escalatory dynamic of uh, polarization, of erosion of the legitimacy of one institution after another. You're all on this zoom, well familiar with uh, what's happened in terms of trust in Congress, trust in the presidency, and, no, and so on. And now, I, I think we can, you know, all pretty much agree that the polls we're going to see on trust in the Supreme Court uh, are going to register record lows of confidence um, when this is all over. And um, I'll just conclude the analysis and then make a couple of points on the way forward by saying that I've been involved with, as Bill has been involved with, a public opinion survey project, uh, the Voter Study Group, Sponsored by Democracy Fund. Uh, And it's not public yet, so I'd ask you to keep this data to yourselves. Um, But uh, they have um, uh, done uh, now a time series asking uh, their random sample of the American public, uh, and specifically asking people who identify as Republicans and asking people who identify as Democrats, whether they think violence would be justified if the other party wins the election. And um, there has been a very significant uh, increase just between June and a week ago uh, in the percentage of party identifiers who think that violence would be at least moderately justified on a five-step scale from no justification to a little justification, to moderate justification, to a lot or a great deal of justification. Uh, And all those indicators are again, flashing red lights. 35% of Republicans and 31% of Democrats today think that violence would be at least moderately justified if the other party wins the presidential election. We're not even saying, as an addendum, if you think the other party wins the uh, the presidential election because of fraud and theft, just if the other party wins the election. And I, I got to tell you, as someone who has studied democratic breakdowns uh, around the world for uh, over thirty years now, I thought we were walking to a cliff, you know, a week ago. Uh, when we weren't in this downward spiral of a titanic battle, not only over a new Supreme Court uh, appointment, but over the legitimacy of such an appointment and confirmation in these circumstances, and uh, I think we're you know we're looking at the political equivalent of total war on Capitol Hill now. So I want to close uh, with two to-do points. That I have spent, you know, a considerable amount of time trying to work for in the last two to three weeks, which I now fear may be completely unachievable uh, as a result of the uh, polarized struggle over the Supreme Court, but which I, <laughs> I'm still going to give it the old college try. Uh, and these were uh, the two things that Ned Foley and I uh, very impressive. Nonpartisan election law scholar at Ohio State University Moritz School of Law and I uh, wrote about in a recent op-ed in the Atlantic. First of all, Marco Rubio sponsored a bill in uh, the in the Senate uh, in June that would uh, extend the deadline this uh, for certifying the Electoral College vote in each of the fifty states from the current deadline of December 8th until January 1st, and then would extend the Electoral College meeting day and vote from December 14th to January 2nd. Why is that important? Because we may need it to finish counting uh, the uh, 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 mail-in ballots in time to allow any legal disputes uh, in the states that might arise over that, to be uh, resolved. Uh, Most uh, election experts uh, felt this was a great idea and not a a partisan idea that could buy us more time and a safety net to avoid uh, a calamitous uh, and polarizing confrontation potentially over the electoral college results, which, which I could explain further the dynamic of that if anyone wants to know. It just—it still doesn't even have a Republican co-sponsor, not to mention a Democratic one. It's just out there all alone as one obvious step we could take uh, that no one is backing. The other thing that a lot of people have called for, including newspapers and individuals, is for the Congress to establish a bipartisan commission Uh, to monitor the electoral process and, if necessary, render opinions in the case of a dispute. And um, I now think it's clear there is zero chance of Pelosi and McConnell or any combination of congressional leaders agreeing to authorize this. I will say there is uh, uh, a bipartisan commission that's in formation by, one, uh, by the, whose, whose construction is being led by one of your sister organizations seeking bipartisan work on Capitol Hill. And I'll just leave it at that. And I think a civil society initiated bipartisan commission would be better than one formally authorized by Congress. But I am really worried about an existential crisis over the legitimacy of the election being further um inflamed by the existential crisis uh that we're going to have over the supreme court nomination and with all of it an- ending in in such uh in almost irresolvable crisis uh in november december potentially going through to inauguration day on january 20th that we have i'm not being melodramatic here widespread violence in the streets of the united states around the outcome of the 2020 election
1: thank you larry for those sobering thoughts uh you've given us all a lot to think about uh and i will now recognize the uh, the first question from larry greenfield larry you're on thank you very much um I appreciate the focus on illiberal populist leaders. The problem that conservatives would have in response, Mr. Diamond, would be, why isn't there a focus on illiberal education, on a dominant media culture? If you watch the Oscars every year, it's a three-hour bashing of middle America and its values. So there's a correlative, equal Mm -hmm. feeling by conservatives that there's a dominant populist or leftist or elitist uh, authority on the other side. And that's why you see the responsive populist movements in various democratic countries.
2: Well, uh, Larry, I agree with much of the thrust of your comment, and I'll I'll go further just as a political scientist. I think this, you know, in an analytical vein, I think this sense uh, that there is a cultural elite that has contempt for different cultural points of view and contempt for, you know, people who drive Ford pickup trucks and, you know, like to hunt uh, is, uh, is a major reason Donald Trump was elected president of the United States. Uh, and there's a huge, uh, gulf in attitudes here. And, you know, anyone on the progressive side who isn't reading the attempts of people like Arlie Hochschild and, uh, uh, Kathy Kramer in their books on, you know, the backlash, uh, against all of this um uh kathy kramer's book about wisconsin and scott walker is called the politics of resentment uh hawkschild strangers in their own land and that great book by um our friend from kentucky that uh whose name i'm i'm misplacing but um uh you know who i'm talking about who tried to explain it from her own his own personal experience jd J. vance yeah jd vance uh, you know, these are very important to understand or put flesh on the bones of um, Larry's concerns. So, Larry, I'll just say, you know, I work at a, you know, right of center think tank, the Hoover Institution. I've, I've been very proud of my association with it. And, you know, I've been working for years now on the Stanford University campus to try and open up students' minds and get them, you um, to abandon some of their political and intellectual prejudices uh, and uh, seek diverse points of view. And I actually think that beneath all of the um, writing about woke culture and petitions uh, and movements that get most of the attention, um, we're actually making some headway on the Stanford University campus. Um, Hoover has never had more student engagement from undergraduates who are supposedly, you know, 95% left of center uh, than we have today. And I think what Hoover has found is if, you know, build it and they will come. So we have programs to uh, engage students and link them up with mentors, including among our uh, are visiting, uh, you know, annual visiting military fellows, State Department fellows, uh, and full-time, you know, fellows at Hoover. And, you know, we have a big agenda. I agree with you. I can can mainly speak about university campuses because that's where I'm based. But I don't think it's all hopeless. And I think the burden is on academics to realize they've got a problem, whatever their personal politics may be. And they've got to, it's their responsibility to address it on each of their campuses.
1: Uh, thanks. Uh, the next question is from Mike Precob. Mike? Thank you, Bill. Uh, Larry, we met uh, several years ago at your office, and uh, but you were off to other parts of the world to study other democracies. And having done that, uh, I'm curious, when you see the demise of democracy in places like Hungary and India and so forth, I'm wondering about the role of press in countries and media and if they contributed or if they could have done more to help support democracy when it does exist or at least make the population more aware of what was happening. Right. And,
2: yeah, Thanks. Well, um, uh, you know, Bill, in a way, could talk about this as well, because he served for a number of years on the board of the National Endowment for Democracy, uh, which I work with because I co-edited its journal. And the National Endowment for uh, Democracy, I don't know how many of you are familiar with it, but it's our principal, congressionally funded, independent, uh, nonpartisan, bipartisan uh, instrument to support freedom and democracy abroad. And a growing share, Mike, of the work they're doing now is supporting independent media in these countries. And that financial support is really important because when media are commercially dependent, as most of them are on, um, you know, advertising and the commercial marketplace, Uh, A clever illiberal on its way to becoming authoritarian government can put the squeeze on them pretty hard. Uh, And if you look at what first Hugo Chavez did in Venezuela, then Erdogan in Turkey, then Orban uh, in um, Hungary, uh, law and justice in Poland, and now the BJP in India. It's a similar playbook. They go to the owners of these media and say, look, either you play ball in your editorial line or you know, we've got a file in the Internal Revenue Service that says you haven't paid adequate taxes uh, in recent years, and we'll give you a bill so large that you won't have your media enterprise anymore, and you may be looking at 10 years in jail. Uh, or it might be a lighter squeeze where they just realize they're not going to get any advertising revenue if their editorial line remains critical or reporting line critical of the government. And so the problem is, yeah, there's not a lot of courage uh, often when uh, you know the survival of your business is potentially at stake. Uh, but also that the instruments available, To an unprincipled and ruthless elected leader can be pretty strong. Now, I think it's a a tribute to the US uh, that that hasn't happened here. And um, our media is polarized, that's the problem, and politicized, but there's plenty of media pluralism. But in these other places, it's been more tenuous. And then the ability of uh, some media channels to continue to you know, maybe publish online uh, as a nonprofit or something becomes uh, uh, pretty important to the survival of media pluralism.
1: Our next question comes from Michael Small. Hi, um, Michael Small from Chicago. Hi, Larry.
3: Uh, you just, I buy everything you said. Um, I also buy that some of the ideas in Congress to fight this are not going anywhere, no labels. You know, we we all are here because we're fighting that. Um, And then on days like we've had recently, it feels like um, bigger trends are overwhelming, all our good good efforts. When you study other countries, how does this all end? I mean, you know, one day Germany was fascist. Today it's democracy. Somehow it ends. I mean, what are the signs of... Um, you look around the world of how you ever get out of this.
2: Michael, uh, please don't use Germany as an example. Uh, look what they went through between the demise of the Weimar Republic and the rise of this now very impressive uh, liberal democracy. I mean, we don't wanna go through that catharsis or even what uh, Chile went through after um, their severely polarized presidential election. Uh, 1970 gave rise first to you know the polarizing socialist salvador allende and then uh you know a uh, decade and a half of military rule so um you know sometimes the way you get out of it is that eventually uh, you get a new political majority and the the polarization breaks because it's no longer, uh, evenly divided, but then that can be very embittering of the minority that's left behind. Uh, the better way to get out of it, I'm very deeply con- convinced, is through the kind of work that you're trying to do. And um, I have, um, you know, uh, I've been as alarmed as you've been by the trends of polarization on Capitol Hill. And um, I think it will, um, you know, we will look back on these few months as an inflection point uh, of a further downward spiral. Um, I think that uh, presumably President Trump's um, Supreme Court nominee uh, will uh, will be confirmed within the coming weeks, whether it's shortly before the election or shortly after if president trump is is reelected then i think all of this will go away because you know that person would have been confirmed sooner or later so you know uh the poison in the system will ebb at least somewhat but um if biden is elected and um and this goes through you will see uh, a pretty intense mobilization to uh to pack the Supreme court. And um, I think you will see an intense effort for the, what I call the nuclear option which is to completely eliminate the Senate filibuster and just force through uh, an enlargement to at least 11 members of um, the Supreme court. Now there will still be sober minds uh, and moderate Democrats resisting all that. But then the challenge will, I think, accelerate, and there could be a new moment for groups like No Labels and the Bipartisan Policy Center and so on to say, well, how might we use this as a new opportunity to forge a compromise? I personally think that if the scenario unfolds and then the Democrats win, a possible way out of this would be uh, a constitutional amendment uh, to um, impose uh, term limits on the Supreme Court, uh, I favor the 18 year limit. And then you've got to decide, well, what do you do about the just, uh, sitting justices? And I think some creative solutions might be found that would involve um, uh, you know, some degree of compromise. Could you get bipartisan agreement? I don't know. But I think you got to keep working at it. And um, the only thing we know for sure that we have going for us, I think everybody who's been involved with No Labels and lots of other people uh, in addition who engage the Congress, is there are a lot of people in the Senate in particular, but also in the House, in both parties, who are really alarmed by this downward spiral. And um, I think the answer is we can't give up and we have to keep broadening the coalition. Come back to Larry's point, broaden it beyond um, uh, just people who are traditionally been involved in in political debates to include non-traditional actors who might join in.
3: Just follow up one more scenario that neither side can agree who won and we get caught. Well,
2: that's the the scenario that, uh, you know, uh, Ned Foley and I are worried about in our um, Atlantic piece because the 1877, uh, uh, 1887 Electoral Count Act is so poorly written uh, that it is possible if you have dueling uh, state delegations from Wisconsin Pennsylvania or whatever, each claiming to be the uh, legitimate slate of electors for the state and the Republican legislature endorses the Trump slate and the Democratic governor in those states or maybe North Carolina endorses the Biden slate. Um, You know, uh, you may have a frozen process on January 6th Uh, when the Congress is supposed to meet and count the electoral votes and resolve this, because the electoral count act is so um, confusing uh, and open to dispute. This is why I think a bipartisan commission is needed. This is why I think it would have been better um, for it to have been blessed by the Congress. This is why in the end, uh, frankly, the only way out of this may be for uh, President Bush and President Obama to join together and maybe um, offer their good offices or appoint an arbitration ban- panel to to resolve this because um, otherwise, I, I mean, I think it's almost a, an absurd scenario, but I, um, I know one of the leading legal experts in national security law, who is now seriously worried that the military will not know on January 20th, who to hand the nuclear codes over to. Uh, let
1: me just tell you where we are. Uh, we have five more questions queued up. Uh, we have about 15 minutes. to get through them, so if the should we take
2: the first three and then the next two, Bill? That I means groups.
1: Uh, I think that would probably be a good idea, Larry. That's sort of where I was heading. Uh okay. and uh, so I'm going to I'm going to call on you know Richard Cash Murray Levin, and Tracy Stein uh, to state their questions. Uh, Larry will respond to them. And then I'll t- then I'll take the final two questions from Rick Kaplan and Glenn Lowenstein. So without further ado, Mr. Uh, <clears throat> cash now. Uh, thanks, uh, uh, Mr. Diamond. I'd just like to ask you to elaborate on your brief reference to the Electoral College. And I, I didn't know if you had something specific that you wanted to say about that. Uh, Murray Levin. So, sorry about that. I am Murray Levin from the Philadelphia area. Thank you for taking my question. Uh, I wonder if you would give us your evaluation of the respect for the guardrails of liberal democracy as you see them coming from the Justice Department under William Barr. Uh, and for this final, for this tranche, uh, Tracy Stein.
4: Hello, Tracy from Houston, Texas. And mine is similar to the previous question, which is, given the disregard of our institutions and the demeaning of our institutions, intelligence, justice, armed services, that we've experienced these last four years, what would another four years under a similar administration led by President Trump look like? Where would we be at the end of that?
2: Okay, um, uh, thank you all. Uh, in response to Richard, um, uh, well, my principled position that I've favored for many decades is uh, eliminating the Electoral College and having a national popular vote. I think it's an antiquated institution. And you know, frankly, Republicans should not want to have a situation where uh, they keep winning the presidency by losing the national popular vote, I think if you eliminate it and institute ranked choice voting uh, for the presidency, uh, we'll get um, we'll still get very competitive presidential elections, but um, each party will have to kind of recalibrate uh, how it runs. Uh, in terms of the Justice Department. Um, You know, I'm going to be very critical of William Barr, so then I'll uh, offer a little bit of criticism of Eric Holder. Um, uh, I think Barr has uh, become an enabler of the erosion of the guardrails. And um, the the, the attorney general, of course, should be able to review prosecutorial decisions and so on. But the zeal with which he seems to be simply uh, becoming the personal attorney for the president when many people believe the president is tearing down these guardrails is, I I think, disturbing to people who um, believe in uh, the constraints and institutions and accountability mechanisms of liberal democracy. And I would just note, as one example, which I think has not gotten enough attention, the uh, progressive firing and evisceration of one inspector general after another. I think we're up to five now, in different cabinet departments and agencies. Um, this is a very uh, uh, disturbing, uh, uh, you know, assault on. Uh, the accountability mechanisms of democracy. Um, But I think um, Barr, of course, um, is going to want to serve and represent uh, the president. That happens with attorney generals, but they have a dual obligation to the rule of law. And I don't think he's been uh, serving that. Uh, There's no dual uh, second dimension of it. With respect to Eric Holder, I'll just say, uh, you know, uh, while I admire what he did to try and uh, defend voting rights, uh, he's one of the ones who, you know, from the very beginning, uh, began floating the idea of packing the Supreme Court, and um, I, I think that has contributed to the polarization. Um with regard to um the disregard for our institutions, Tracy, um uh, and what would happen in the second term, um I know several people who have served in the Trump administration. Uh and I'm not going to name them, but I think they're very worried uh about that. And um I think that um uh, the uh, the independence of the military is one of the most precious and essential elements of stable liberal democracy in the United States and in the intelligence community. And if you mess with that, um, uh, it's very frightening. I will tell you as well that I think our intelligence is being politicized, particularly with the departure of, to my mind, a great American, Dan Coates, uh, from the position of Director of National Intelligence. And I will just tell you without elaborating uh, that um, the current DNI sent a message um, to someone I know who had issued a very critical tweet of President Trump uh, that was very intimidating and even rather frightening. A private message from the director of national intelligence to a a private citizen essentially accusing them of bordering on treason because of one of their tweets. And I think we're gonna see more of this in a second Trump term.
1: All right, we turn finally to uh, Rick Kaplan and Glenn Lowenstein for the concluding questions. Rick?
4: Hi, Rick Kaplan from Houston. Um, this conversation's gone all over the place. There's a lot of questions that I wrote down to ask, but first and probably the most important one is how this ends. Um, we saw you know, protesting violence during Trump's inauguration. Um, in DC. So I agree that we probably will have some sort of, uh, you know, um, violence going on. We have violence now. It continues in Portland and things like that. It's just not in the news. But how, how does this end? I mean, will it ever end? And um, your comment on, on, on popular vote, I don't know how a conservative or Republican could ever expect to win a popular vote. With California, New York, all and and the most populous states being so um, so liberal. Thanks,
1: Glenn. Yeah, um, <clears throat> thank you f- um, for being on the call. Uh, my question is: you started the call with an analysis. And you went through about eight points. I don't think no labels can do much about resentment, insecurity, existential threats, and so on. But when you get to dismantling the guardrails of balance of power. What would you, I think that's the point where no labels can jump in and do something, but I don't know what it can do. So what would you recommend for no labels to work on with regard to protecting those guardrails and possibly rebuilding them?
2: Well, um, okay, so uh, let me start with Rick. Um, I think um, the question, how does this end, is the wrong question because um, you don't get to this depth uh, and protracted na- nature of pol- polarization and then just have an awakening moment or, you know, kind of maybe one crisis and then suddenly everybody wakes up and it just all goes away. Um, so uh, the I think um, the proper noun is not termination, but abatement. Uh, How do we draw the poison out of our partisan politics? How do we mitigate things? How do we do what you've been trying to do since No Labels was founded, which is find common ground? And how do we reform the system? So that we can change the incentive structure, um, we haven't gotten to this yet. But now, I guess, in our final minutes, is the time for me to stress this. Um, I think uh, there is no political reform in the United States that is more urgently important for changing the incentive structure uh, than rank choice voting. Of course, I would put high up there, ending gerrymandering of legislative districts, uh, increasing um, the neutrality of key institutions who would have thought that the census would become a matter of such intense political controversy. But if you give uh, people a chance to rank their ballots, um, uh, ideally in the primaries, but also in a general election, Uh, you're going to see moderates coming forward and maybe independents. And I think in some places winning or at least inducing each of the two major party candidates for governor, senator, Congress, whatever, in different states, state legislature, to move a little more toward the middle in order to pick up the second preference votes of some of the other uh, candidates who maybe aren't identified with the two parties or maybe the dominant uh, polarizing wings of the two parties. And here I'm very hopeful. I think we are making progress. You know the story of Maine, I think, and the multiple battles they went through to get ranked choice voting. Uh, Maine just prevailed in the courts, I think, today uh, to be able to use ranked choice voting in the presidential election. It's largely a symbolic victory, but it will prevail. Um, there are other states now that are trying to adopt ranked choice voting. Massachusetts is going to vote on it uh, in November, and I think it's got a good chance of winning. I think there's been an effort, uh, there's some form of it on the ballot in Alaska. I think it's got a good chance of winning there as well. And, um, you know, so I think the way this begins to end, uh, Rick. Uh, and so, what I want to say is the way this abates, the way this mitigates, uh, is by organizations like No Labels continuing to do the work you were doing to try to find common ground on Capitol Hill in practical forms and to try and put together the change makers and conciliators uh, in each house who might build coalitions from the center out. But in addition, to go to work at the grassroots, particularly in the states that have uh, the referendum, uh, to change the incentive structure. Ranked choice voting is going to change the incentive structure away from polarizing logics. And to my mind, it's the single most important reform we can achieve. And when you put it on the ballot and make people aware of it and talk about it, they like it because they don't like the duopoly of the two-party system. Even people you know, who are more to the extremes have problems with that. They'd like more choice uh, on the ballot. They'd like more fluidity and they'd like every vote to count. Uh, and when you explain it to people, they really, really like it. I just wanna say, I don't accept the proposition that a conservative couldn't win Uh, the popular vote in the future. I think the greatest favor you could do, this may sound like a very arrogant statement coming from someone who is not a Republican, but I'm going to say it anyway. The greatest favor you could do to the Republican Party is eliminate the Electoral College because it would force them to broaden their appeal. And there are a lot of culturally and economically conservative Hispanics out there and Asians who if a Republican presidential candidate had to figure out how to get to a majority or plurality of the popular vote, I think would um, it would do so and win. And in the future, you know, there'll be a Democratic president, uh, maybe this year, there might be a Democratic trifecta, House, Senate, and White House. They will overreach and then there will be a reaction. And that is the yin and yang of American politics. There's not going to be a permanently dominant party. Uh, In terms of what no labels can do, the final question. Well, first, let me say, um, join in the struggle for ranked choice voting. I I just cannot emphasize enough how important I think that is to your longer term vision of trying to bridge the divide on Capitol Hill. Because what you've got on Capitol Hill now, I think, is a large number of people, Republicans and Democrats, who are sick about the climate and sick about the chasm, but they look at having to face a primary election where they might lose with no path to re-election, or they just look at the general polarizing logic of first past the post and they get drawn away from their better instincts. So we need electoral incentives to empower the people we know we or we think we know we can work with to realize their better instincts. And then on the guardrails front, I think we need legislation to protect our guardrails uh, and uh, to enhance the protection. So I think we need to make it much more difficult to uh, remove inspectors general, uh, and we need to protect some other accountability mechanisms. I'd like to see a federal electoral commission with real authority, not appointed by Democrats and Republicans, but where the balance of power is held uh, held by neutral election experts, and at some point I think we've got to revisit uh, this broken system for the Supreme Court. And I I, I do strongly favor uh, something like an 18 year fixed term for Supreme Court justices after which they would uh, could spend happily the rest of their long lives if they wish on the federal appellate court bench. Um, but we need to think creatively about how we can try to recover um, some of the legitimacy and draw away some of the partisan poison from the Supreme Court after what is going to be, I think, uh, a real low that it's going to be plunged to after this uh, nomination struggle.
1: Thank you. Uh... Yes, indeed. Thank you, Larry. It may be of interest for you to learn that No Labels early uh, in its existence endorsed the idea of an 18-year single single term for Supreme Court justices. Oh, I didn't know Maybe that's where I
2: got the idea. (laughs)
1: Recently restated that position at, at some length in a in a paper that was published in the Maxwell School at Syracuse University series. Uh, And many of the other things that you've said are music to our ears. But let me just, because the hour is late, in lieu of an elaborate conclusion, let me just plead with everybody who's on this call. Uh, I hope you are persuaded by what you've heard in the past hour that. The task to which No Labels has dedicated the past decade and will dedicate the next decade is of vital importance, not just to particular policies, but to the future of the democratic order in this country. In the 10 years of our existence, the stakes have risen inexorably, uh, and they are now as high as they have been. Since the Civil War, in my opinion. Uh, And that's not an opinion that I alone hold. Uh, And so, you know, and so just ask yourselves when this conversation ends: is there more I could be doing? You know, is there more that I could be doing in my community? Is there more that I could be doing to persuade my national elected officials in the House and the Senate? To join with us. Uh, As you know, we now have a gang of eight in the Senate. uh, But we need more than eight. You know, we need a gang of 16. We need a group that can serve as a deterrent to one-party rule and extremism. Uh, And for those of you of means, uh, I know there are a lot of demands, particularly in this political season, but can you do more? Uh, to help No Labels spread the word, to organize. Uh, We are now organizing in cities around the country. Uh, But this is a labor-intensive and resource-intensive effort. And so we need a little bit more of your time, a little bit more of your energy, a little bit more of your money, uh, for those who have it, uh, to build this organization at a more rapid pace to meet the needs of the moment. And Larry, thank you for restating and underscoring the predicate behind all of our efforts. And we hope we can hear from you again, perhaps after the election, uh, to review uh, the trajectory of efforts to save us from violence and disaster.
2: Okay, thanks, Bill. Uh, Just really echo your points. I have great admiration for this organization and its role has never been more vital.
0: And with that, we are adjourned. Larry Diamond warns against the dangers of political parties delegitimizing their opponents. He explains that these are warning signs in the fraying of Americans' shared commitment to liberal democracy. He goes on to explain that there is also a danger, as displayed by President Trump, of using every ounce of legally available power while ignoring the customs of political compromise. According to Diamond, democratic stability relies on a system of mutual security, with each side recognizing that they need to exercise forbearance. Meaning, just because they can do something, it does not mean they should. Go to nolabels.org to learn more about how we are bringing together a bipartisan group of public and private leaders working to solve America's toughest problems. I'm Ryan Clancy, and this has been an episode of Gridlock Break, a No Labels podcast.